Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. All right, welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. I'm Klaus Yoder. Travis is here as always, and we have a very special guest today. Dr. Professor Catherine Walker of the English Department of the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. Catherine, Katie, if I may, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for joining us. We're so blessed to have you with us to talk us through some of the critical issues and delightful tidbits in Christopher Marlowe's late 16th century play, Dr. Faustus which has a longer title, which I am blanking on right now, <laughs> The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus or whatever. <laughs> Just a note about the plot of the play for Dr. Faustus by Marlowe. It appears, as I mentioned last episode, really close to the publication of the German Historia that I was I was detailing in the last two episodes of this series. Basically, and I, I gotta take I gotta take a victory lap here, Marlowe chooses a lot of the episodes that I chose to focus on from this very long book, like the adventures with Charles V, the thing about Helen of Troy, the thing about Alexander the Great, all kinds of things like that. He basically boils it down to its greatest hits and adds his own brilliant emendations and poeticizing of certain parts of the Faust legend. And so I'm not going to belabor the the plot because it's it's you know it's a professor at Wittenberg who wants to be able to do more than what he can do who wants to understand more than the liberal arts and the faculties of traditional Western learning can afford him and who's entranced by the idea of magic and being aided through necromancy by demons and in particular Mephistopheles in helping him pursue his ends. So it's a very similar story. So just to make that point, in case you're you're like wondering as we as we go on, like what are they even talking about? Uh, the last two episodes will help you make sense of that of the sort of basic basic outlines of the traditional Faust legend. But yeah, so Katie, you're working on a book project right now uh, that I see from your website is <laughs> titled "Instinct, Knowledge, and Science." on the early modern stage. So I can see where Christopher Marlowe really ties into that. Yeah, okay, that's right. Um, so yeah, I, I recently finished a book and, and one uh, kind of significant chapter is on Dr. Faustus because uh, I'm looking at instincts and kind of concepts of science in the period or what they would have called sciences, not definitely what we would consider science today. And so yeah. I'm really interested in this in those moments of teaching of like where Mephistopheles suddenly is like giving Faustus an astronomy lesson right (laughs) or even uh the clowns in this play which I hope we get to talk about because they're I think they're really great uh but like they they learn throughout this play right like they acquire a book and they actually don't need to know how to read to nonetheless like learn about what a demon is right yeah yeah. Uh, and so for me, um, this play is weirdly kind of uh, inflected with science and it, it has at, at times a didactic tone to it that I think is really interesting. So, so yeah, uh, I, I love this play. I, I mean, I, I teach it every chance I get, right? Um, and yeah, my students are always pointing out like moments where characters just like seek to acquire knowledge. Right, like this play is all about knowledge. So totally, um, that's how yeah. I yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's also in the 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 older German, slightly older German book I was podcasting about the last times. It is a lot about knowledge, and there are these really detailed chapters all about the the uh, the, the cosmos, astrology, astronomy, and just the nature of the universe. And we, we get that a little bit in the play too. Just to start. Yeah. Of, start off a little bit with our, our author. We're talking about Christopher or Kit Marlowe. Died very young, 
his, his mm-hmm. lifespan was 1564 to 1593 son of a shoemaker so like of a skilled craftsman i would i would think i would say about that so you you, you know you get on wikipedia and you start looking at kit marlowe a lot of things jump off the page i would say <laughs> yes. yes um i'll run through some of the things that stood out to me he was accused at various moments of being a catholic a secret catholic agent a double spy secret catholic agent an atheist secret catholic agent a gay secret catholic agent <laughs> all by turn <laughs> um so like who was this guy like what do we know about him yeah that's a great question so we don't know a ton we we, we have very few uh you know like actual historical documents except for some kind of suspicious material like the the Baines letter where you get um so this is uh, an accusation uh made against Marlowe later uh and you know it, it basically lays out all of these very wild claims about Marlowe like uh that he said you know all who love not tobacco and boys are fools uh yeah. you know Moses was I mean, a juggler right yeah <laughs> so like all these great quotes um so we know for example that yeah, he was born the same year Shakespeare, grew up in Canterbury, which is actually really interesting, right? Like this kind of hub of, of Catholic, you know, statehood, et cetera, um, yeah, yeah. in early days. But of course, this is a Protestant Reformation. But nonetheless, like he grows up in a like religiously inflected environment. Um, and yeah, somehow, you know, makes his way uh, to London, but also is, you know, working for not even like Walsingham, like not even like really the, the big spy master, but like, you know, Walsingham's second cousin. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so like um, we, we have shadowy evidence that he was um, in the kind of Queen's service to some extent. And we know that from uh, the fact that he, he went to Cambridge on scholars. So, yeah. um, he, well, we all know uh, what that means. Know. Those Cambridge scholarships, <laughs> goodness, <Yes>. suspicious. <laughs> Always. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, but we know that he was working for some sort of spy system or something like that, uh, because, uh, they tried to prevent his graduation and actually the Privy Council wrote to Cambridge and said, no, 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 he's good. Like <laughs> he's one of ours. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. Let him through. Right. And of course that never happens today. So, no Catholicism um, here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's, I mean, that's, again, we don't really know what his, you know, own religion was, but certainly a lot of rumors about uh, him owning illicit books and having access to uh, Catholic communities and stuff like that has surfaced. Um, and then, yeah, the big thing about Marlowe is he's, you know, working for the, the spy system. He's writing these fantastic plays, but he's already famous, uh, you know, very, very early on with Chamberlain plays. Uh, and, um, you know, this becomes a model that is just like so startling and new. Uh, and then, of course, mm. he dies. He's murdered or murdered, um, murdered, yeah. attacked in, in Deptford in a bar, right? And so um, a lot of conspiracy theories have arose out of that, too, because, like, you know, some people, of course, like, claim that he never died, that he went on to write Shakespeare stuff. And, he's alive know, today. Was, I mean, he's, yes. he's, he's part of the Kennedy family. You <laughs> wait, know, wait, yeah. wait, wait, wait. Is he, haunt- is he haunting... Katie right now, Dr. Walker's like, uh, is that why we've had trouble with technology today? Who knows? Like, we can't say one way or the other, really. Yeah. Yes. You're, I mean, um, I would love it. Like if, if Marlowe haunted me, I would choose Marlowe as a haunter any day over Shakespeare, right? Like, um, Oh yeah. So, you're, you're and, taking and me, I, you're taking me back to shit to, to, to uh, Ulysses where they have a debate about, uh, whose ghost is Shakespeare and Hamlet and whatever, but yeah, anyway. Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, oh, and he was also, just as a side note, um, one piece of evidence we have about his beliefs and things like that is uh, he was roommates with another playwright uh, named Thomas Kidd. Uh, and Thomas Kidd wrote a very famous play called The Spanish Tragedy. Um, and Kidd 
got in trouble and claimed that a bunch of books found in his apartment were actually Marlowe. So these were books that were, you know, supposedly not allowed in early modern England. Yeah. So we don't know exactly what they were. Really convenient. Really convenient. So so much for like roommate solidarity. Am I right? I know. And playwright solidarity, right? Like kid was like, no. Yeah. Bullshit. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Okay. So one thing I like, I went through the the big uh, German collection of stories about Faust. And one thing I really liked about Marlowe's version is that it seems really pretty short, even compared to like Shakespeare's plays, like not very long. Like, so what, why do we think it's the way it is in terms of how long it is? Yeah. I I mean, that's such a fabulous question. Um, There's been a lot of speculation about this particular um, text, or I should say text because it exists in kind of two very different forms. And I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, so one thing is, it just might be that this is closer to a kind of performance copy than the normal cast, right? So a lot oh. of the Shakespearean versions of plays that we have, right, are, are much longer than mm. would have actually been able to be performed, right? Like Hamlet, if you actually performed everything in the Hamlet portos, it would take over four hours. Right. Yeah, Kenneth Branagh, um, take note. Yeah, I know. Yeah, please. Yes. Oh my goodness. Can we make some cuts, please? Thank you. Yes. So it could be that, right? Um, so that's that's one speculation. Um, but there is, I mean, it's really interesting to see how like this this play, you're right, it's very um short and snappy, uh, but it does get added on to you later, right? So yeah. the earliest version we have scholars call the Apex. Uh, and there's changes in the language uh, in terms of like, or not changes, but the, the apex is much, much more about uh, kind of Faustus's own role in uh, his own damnation, right? So it's mm. a lot of like, uh, the language is, is very much about um, his introspection. Okay. Mm. Later, uh, this guy named Philip Kinsler, who's like this, uh, you know, theater manager, he pays some guys, other playwrights, to add on to and to um, change uh, Faustus. Uh, and that's because this play is so popular, right? Wow. But it is, it's, it's basically, they, they want to read this, right? So this is years later, uh, but uh, Marlowe's definitely dead at this point. They pay for, um, or, or Hinsler pays for additions, so that becomes what we call the B text. And what's interesting mm-hmm. about that shift is it actually tells us what uh, audiences in the period wanted, right? Because these guys yeah. are paid to mm-hmm. make it more popular. And so we would think, uh, and scholars are very mad about this, right? Like, oh, we would get more like Faustus in his study and like more kind of uh, these, you know, deep questions. But what we <laughs> actually get with the B-Tags are more clouds, right? Like we actually get more um kind of a that like slapstick polarity type thing right mm-hmm. so the b text is, is a lot of fun for showing you that no what people wanted was just like more of like Mephistopheles kind of getting tricks and you know things like that right um, so uh and that comes out um b text shows up 1616 is the first uh-huh. um publication date for that oh, okay. um anyway oh and let me just um so b text also is much more externally, like like things that happen to Faustus happen to him more in the B text, right? So the language uh, of yeah. devils doing things to him mm-hmm. rather than him like deciding to do things. It's, it's much more prominent in the B text. That's fascinating, yeah. Oh, so it sort yeah. of shifts, um, you know, if, if you're taking a kind of religio-moral take on the, on the play, it shifts the, the agency quite a bit and changes the flavor of the whole thing, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. It, it totally does. There's a line in the B text where um, it's actually a short scene, actually, where Mephistopheles shows up on stage alone and he says, anytime Faustus reached for a Bible, I would literally like like cloud over his eyes essentially right and so um like it changes how you read that last scene right because like uh faustus you know asking for repentance it's Mm -hmm. it's a much like harsher image actually in the b text where like he was he was damned to begin with because 
devils were acting upon him, you know, rather than like, you know, it's not his own fault really anymore. Yeah. And that, so. that really connects to the, the German text too, because the German text also has moments where it makes Faust responsible and it has other moments where it's clear that Mephistopheles is like, oh yeah, we possessed you when you made that deal. Like, yeah. and so yeah. it, it, it sort of wavers between a predestinarian view and a like a more sort of uh, autonomous, uh, like the sort of the, the greed for knowledge and the ambition of Faust as like this sort of ubermensch would be person. Um, and so, yeah, I think that sort of also is reflected in these two uh, textual variants or, or versions that you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, at least for the A text, Marlowe wants it both ways, right? Like he wants us to be thinking about predestination and about like some of the traits of that, right? But he also yeah. wants to have a protagonist who has some control over his world. So I think about in the prologue, um, Marlowe's say, uh, he's described, Faustus is described as Icarus, right? Yeah. And in some mm-hmm. ways you're like, that's terrible, like Icarus dies. But for, I think for Marlowe, it's also like a really admirable image too, right? Like, like ad- but at least he tried, you know, at least he flew for a bit kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So, well, he, he committed. Um, right. <laughs> I think there's, yes. it does sound like there's some admiration for that. Like, well, you know, he really gave it a go. Yeah. <laughs> he went all in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Travis, do you want to take the next question? Well, I do, but I feel like this is such a Klaus question and I love it. So credit where it's due, this comes from Klaus, but I wanted to talk a little bit. I was quite intrigued about this connection between, um, uh, Faustus's lust for power um, and mm. this very early modern um, important idea around empire and colony. Um, yeah. So what do we, what should we think about the connection between demonic temptation, um, which we see with Mephistopheles acting on Faust and empire in particular, right? You know, the, the silk um, references, the geographic references to America and these distant lands. How should we think about those connections? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. And so I, this is perhaps a loose kind of analogy here, but I, I think about, you know, uh, the devil's temptations of Christ, right? And one of those temptations is dominion over all of the land. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind yep, of like yep. a classic, uh, classic temptation. But then when you get to the Renaissance, of course, that's inflected with the fact that the rulers of these nations are indeed going out and and colonizing people and and taking over land and so um especially in england right at this moment that the play is being uh written and performed there's so much anxiety over how much of uh advantage right the spain has in particular Um, shout out to king philip shout out yes up to the Spanish Armada, like, right, there's, there's all of that going on. And at the same time that um, Marla's writing, uh, you have figures like Raleigh. And, and actually, we think that uh, Marla and Raleigh knew each other. But Raleigh is just, I mean, he's constantly promoting for um, expansion of an English empire, right? So uh, before he even sell, sails to America, he's, he's you know, begging the queen for money to go across seas and to you know again like establish firmly an english empire that will challenge um, the spanish and portuguese so i think all of that context is at play here uh, but it takes on um almost a ludic quality in marlowe's play like i wonder if he's deflating those pretensions like i keep going back to the the line of dressing all of his fellow students in silk right like it's so so ridiculous <laughs> like, yeah, yeah like it's not like i want power so that i can be like charles v or i could be like alexander right like for Faustus himself it's i want all of my my buds to be pretty you know what i mean like it's uh like his his colonialist fantasies are just that like they're 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 they remain in the abstract and like they, you know, it's so materialized, right? Like he wants silk, he wants gold, pearls, all of these objects. 
Um, and yet, like, of course, all of that remains in the realm of fantasy. We never see him dressed in silk, or maybe we do if the, the producer or a director makes that but still, like, we don't see um, any of the actual fruits of these fantasies. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and that's different yeah. from some of the other kind of, I'm thinking about the, the ways that he interacts with Mephistopheles and the things he asks for. Um, I'm thinking about Helen of Troy. I'm thinking about, you know, um, the sort of gender bending demons. And we'll get into some of that later, but um, that those are the fantasies that get actualized, but these material empire linked fantasies don't, I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, sorry. I think I think it would be a good way to connect to the question about how sex works in this play, too, since it seems like there's a natural connection there. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, uh, and, and stop me, because I will uh, go on far too long about this, but I think just um, having studied this play for years and years, I think it's an immensely queer play. Uh, I think that there's a lot of interest in kind of undoing heteronormative desire or, um, you know, of course, um, marriage is a sacrament. There's that moment where Faustus asks for a wife. Mephistopheles brings in um, a devil. Uh, and of course, um, that's really interesting in and of itself because, A, uh, we know that devils could be either sex, right? That they don't have to be male or female. They could switch from succubi to incubi. Um, so that's like one part of the equation. Another part of the equation, of course, is that every ostensibly female character in this play would have been performed by a male boy. Um, and yeah. so that's just another kind of context, especially when we get to Helen. But I think simply in, like built throughout this play is a kind of um, interest or, or lack of interest actually in kind of just a male-female relationship, right? So I'm thinking of that moment where Mephistopheles uh, takes away the devil, right? That's supposed to be his wife. And he says, you know, you can have a woman that's as chaste as Penelope, as wise as the, the Queen of Saba, or um, as beautiful as Lucifer was, right? So, like, yeah, optionality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Um, and I, I, I do think, and, and I've seen performances that uh, really make a lot of this and, and, and in very clever um useful ways that the the only intimate relationship we have in this whole play is Mephistopheles and Faustus, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of terms of endearment among the two. You know, if you love me, you'll say this, uh, my dear yeah. Mephistopheles, yeah. right? So um, I think that, that all of that is happening as well. Um, and then finally, yeah. when you do have that moment where Helen comes in, uh, of course, uh, you have the very trite line. <laughs> was, was this the face that launched a thousand ships? Yeah, yeah. Um, Shakespeare love, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you have that, but um, but that moment is um, it's highly charged, right? It's about it's not about um, you know, oh, this is a great relationship or or anything like that. It's about sucking, right? Like he says, like she's sucking forth my soul, yep, and yep. and it's just like a you know, if we think that would have been performed by a young boy or we're meant to understand that as a demon or a spirit that can shift different sexes, right? Like to me, um, I think there's a, there's a really interesting queer reading for the Faustus Helen relationship too, right? Right. Um, demon queer reading. That makes sense. And we were just watching the Richard Burton 68 version of this play, which I... <laughs> recommend with like my body and soul as it were in the <laughs> and Mephistopheles is like crying for Faust at different moments in this play like when Faust is is finally consumed at the end Mephistopheles is like despair is really distraught and I think that really goes along yeah. with the reading that you're offering yeah absolutely um I've seen Justin the Globe did one of these a few years ago where um, there's also this physical difference between the actors playing Mephistopheles and, and Faustus, right? And to kind of suggest a, a type of even like deeper um, kind of, even like, you know, appearance-based miserability, right? Um, mm. And so there are different ways that you can really point up 
their their relationship and how Mephistopheles does come to care for Faustus, right? Like there are moments too where um, maybe when he says things like, don't ask me this, right? Like, don't, don't question me about this. Like he's actually mm. trying to protect Faustus. Yeah. I don't well, know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in the, in the, in the, the Burton play, and I think it is just from the text of Marlowe, but the way they, 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 they accent and emphasize certain lines, Mephistopheles is like, kind of like saying like at the very beginning of their relationship, like you don't want to do this. Like, you know, yeah. like he, there's like yeah. hints about that. And, and that's, and I find that well, also really compatible with what you're saying. I wonder yeah. um, about the, a kind of pedagogical products that's at play in that relationship too, as we think about different versions of like what it means to do a queer reading or queer um, sexuality or erotics. It strikes me that, that there's something that's not so much centered on a kind of, uh, you know, there we've discussed some of the normative uh, uh, elements of desire um, for bodies or for ideas of beauty. Um, but I wonder about desire for knowledge and the kind of exchange or tutoring that we see between the two of them, particularly at the beginning in relation to different forms of knowledge, casting them aside, but that desperate search on the part of our protagonist um, that gets directed toward uh, Mephistopheles. I mean, to the point of the conjuring in the Burton version, for example, I mean, you were talking about crying um, Klaus earlier. He's crying out in desire um, to manifest mm. this thing. Mephistopheles! that ultimately is a quest for knowing, uh, which feels mm -hmm. very, very Christian, right? The conflation between knowledge and desire, yeah. uh, Adam yeah. and Eve, et cetera. Yes. I think that there's um, that that's absolutely at least what um, you know what what that's the initial to their relationship, right? Like that's why um, I mean we're supposed to be really impressed that Faustus um, goes to the solitary grove with all these different representations of his previous learning, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's got the Bible, he's got Saint Albans, right? Like he's got a ton of text, and it's interesting that he's marked by Pat, essentially, at the beginning of the play, in that moment that uh, you were mentioning, Travis, right, where he's, like, throwing aside all of these different forms of learning because they, you know, have their own limitations. Right. And Mephistopheles represents um, things that are enlist, but also um, perhaps boundless, right, that, like, Mephistopheles has knowledge that he could transmit. And I think that um, that's also where we get some of the language of um, consumption in this play too, mm. right? So that like Faustus is described as like, he says at one point, point um, how I am blooded with, and yeah. he means like the idea, right? Like that, that knowledge can somehow um, be something to be consumed and, um, you know, that he can be a glutton of, um, of knowledge itself, right? Uh, yeah. So yeah, that, that ties into a lot of things that, uh, that I really sort of came to this conversation interested in. And one of them is how Faust is sort of a glutton for knowledge, but he's also, he like 
he consumes it and then like he poops it out and he's done with it. Basically <laughs> he digests it. It's like one of those is, <laughs> is, is uh, theology in the Bible, as you say. And in the beginning, you know, we get the, you know, the wages of sin or death or the, the, the reward for sin mm-hmm. is death line, uh, stipendium, picati, et cetera. And uh, I'll let the real Latinist uh, start doing Latin a little bit, but, but like this sense that like Faust, like is trying to use what St. Paul says, to excuse his own behavior he's like well the, the way i'm reading because like he starts to yeah. he, he seems to come to the, the biblical text with a kind of skeptics natural philosophical materialist outlook or, or something and he's yeah. like well that just that just means we're all gonna die you know that you know <laughs> he's like if we if we take <laughs> away the stupid part that just there's a truth there and it's we're all gonna die so like you know seize the day kind of thing and so I was wondering and just like, I was just like really struck by how he is at once throwing, pooping out theology, but also trying to use it. And I think that there's a, there's a sort of really mm. interesting productive tension there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's, you know, it's a selective, right? Yes. <laughs> it's a selective yes, yes. way of reading um, where he's, you know, the way I usually teach this, I guess, is how I would approach that question is like, um, I, you know, I start with like how Faustus is a bad reader, right? Like that, you know, he doesn't continue the line, Mm -hmm. but the reward, uh, you know, is everlasting, you know, whosoever believes in God, right? That sort of thing, right? So, um, so he's a bad reader, but what he is really good at doing is kind of twisting these um, theological conceits or, um, you know, kind of playing with them. um, And again, like exposing their limits. Right. And I think one one moment that like really gets at that is when he's asking Mephistopheles about like the location of hell. Right. Because what he's actually saying is what the Bible says about cosmology does not actually make sense. (laughs) 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 Like, Like, where is hell? Right. Like, like, how are we supposed to believe that, you know, the center of the earth is this core of, you know, it's a very Dante-esque hell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't believe that. He's kind of right to, right? Like the, um, the Bible itself does not describe in a lot of detail, like this, you know, uh, lava-filled place. And so oh, he's no. very skeptical, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know? No, see, um, see earlier episodes of this podcast, anyone who's interested in <laughs> that question. Yes, totally yes. agree with you, Katie. Good, good. So, I mean, it's, he's, it's, it's exciting in that moment because I feel like a lot of audience members are, are nodding vigorously, right? But of course, Mephistopheles like just kind of slides over that question and makes it more about like emotions or affects, right? So mm-hmm. he doesn't care necessarily about cosmology. He's like, hell is in me, right? He, it's yeah. a very like Milton-esque way of putting it. Exactly, um, yeah. Oh my God. pre milton I yeah, feel exactly. so validated right now with um, you with actual expertise in this in this area saying making a comparison to Milton in that moment. Uh, I almost wrote down a comment <laughs> in that direction. I was like, what if I'm completely wrong? And Katie no. knows that I'm a fraud. Anyway, feeling great about myself right now. That's all. Carry yes, on. As you should. Yes, as you should. Good. I'm, I'm, getting, a, I'm getting a phone call right now and it, my phone's displaying it as fraud alert. I don't know if that has anything oh, to do with it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Or it could be Marlowe. Again, you might. Right, the haunting. It's just the haunting. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I know you all have like set questions, but I wanted to ask you, like, uh, since you watched the Burton film, which I adore, but it's also like very, it's it's a strange film as well, right? Like delightfully so. Like, what did y'all make of the, um, you know, the the Elizabeth Taylor ghostly presence throughout, right? Like, was was Burton's film trying to make this more about like, no, Faustus isn't gay. Like, this is this is a very like, like this is all because of this desire for you know a figure that you know is, is yeah. gorgeous and he sees her mm-hmm. throughout, right? Yeah. Like, what did you um, make of that? <laughs> do, you, do you want to go first, Travis? I I, I sure. have some points, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um. I. I saw it on the one hand as a kind of uh, practical needing to build in this very heteronormative way, the, the, the need to build this film as having a female lead in which there like, isn't an obvious one. And so let's just really yeah. spruce something up and get a big name. Right. Although I'm not sure. Right. 
Uh, I think at this point, Elizabeth Taylor was huge, right? Um, at this point, yeah. they, they were they were a couple. They were a couple, right? Too. Oh, amazing, yeah. amazing. Um, but it seemed so like put on to me the way that there's no line in the play in several scenes where she just appears and walks forward. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, there was a New York Times review um, of of the film version that that panned it. Um, said something about Taylor's performance like well there wasn't really a performance to you know uh, to critique oh, there's like there's like nothing there which is I'm sorry uh, I, I think I think acting is more than speaking words I'm just gonna put that out there yes. um yeah. and you know if you've ever seen one someone work a runway I feel like Elizabeth Taylor was doing a pretty good job of that but you know whatever because there was like a runway walk in the middle you're just like Am I at a fashion show where she's like approaching the camera dead, like straight on? That's hard to do and make it look interesting, to be frank. I mean, yeah. I'm not, but it just shows that I'm not Elizabeth Taylor as much as I'd like to be. Uh, Klaus, what was your take? <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry, Travis, because I know that you are like halfway through the film. Yes. But oh, you're going to spoil you, it for me. Yeah, I'm Fine. sorry. I think we have to. I mean, so All like right. the, the, the brilliant thing that they do with her is that they make her the devil at the end. What? They do oh, not. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's oh, incredible. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, it's problematic in certain ways, but it's totally yeah. brilliant. And of course, if she's the devil, then it kind of lends itself to a like a very hetero kind of orientation. At, at the same time, I mean, the Mephistopheles Faust thing is really in on overdrive in this film. I mean, at one yeah. part where he like starts to make out with it, you know, like Mephistopheles like literally transforms into like one of the demon brides that he's like trying to make out with. Yeah. Like, and they, and they have this, like, it is like the most, it's the deepest emotional relationship in the film um, and in the play, I would say too. But so like she, like, there is a lot of, uh, I would say sort of both siding with, <laughs> with having her <laughs> play such an amazing role in the film without speaking at all. She like laughs maniacally at the end, which is awesome for like she lasts mm -hmm. maniacally for like 15 minutes straight or something but um but yeah like so i don't know i do think that it doesn't if it was trying to disavow the kind of queer um subterranean like energies there it doesn't really do that it doesn't succeed at that um maybe it's just like making an argument for a bisexual faustus i don't know but like that's that's that, that's sort of my my take on it yeah do you want a fun fact about this so um you're getting you're getting it anyways i'm sorry um <laughs> so marlo marlo wrote um another play called edward the second which is um it's it's it revolves around um king edward and his favorites and it is very very clear in this play that uh edward has uh queer relationships with his favorites, right um which mm -hmm. is not at all unusual in the period um so anyways, this, um, there's a section of this play where they just, uh, one of his favorites describes like how he's going to visually woo uh, Edward II, right? And he's going to bring in images of young boys and, and he's going to have like basically this pageant. Well, that actually shows up in the Burton film, right? So that they, they took uh, the, this imagined pageant with the young right. boys and the, right. yeah. yeah. And so they wow. took that from Edward II uh, and placed it into um, the kind of fantasies of, of this particular film. So it's an interesting way in which I think the filmmakers were saying, yeah, these two plays are in dialogue and the way that they're in dialogue is through queer desire, right? So that's just like one, one case I would make for that particular like uh, transposition of text in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and and I was just saying, like, I was an English major and I read Doctor Faustus. I haven't read any of the other Marlowe plays, and uh, we, I mean, Travis just got the complete edition, and uh, so I know he's going to diligently read all of them. But Obviously. yeah, that's great oh, to yay. sort of see this intertextuality. Yeah, he's he got an amazing uh, Penguin edition with a, with with Faustus on the cover, and he's been doing his own <laughs> experiments with trying to recreate the the posture, the poses that, that Faustus strikes in this image. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it. No there. way. Yeah, no, for real. So um, when it came in, so my, my partner is a big, you know, bibliophile. And he's a penguin he's a, guy. Isn't he like a penguin, penguin guy? He yeah, yeah. might or might not have the penguin logo tattooed on his body. It, it, that could be true. Oh my um, God. Who, kno That's who knows? Really? Who knows? Um, but 
Um, I showed him, I, I let him open the package and, and do the big reveal, right? The, uh, the unboxing, as it were. We are not uh, big enough on social media to have recorded that. But what we did record um, was uh, his imitation of the posture with props um, to recreate the cover, <laughs> the cover image. So I'll be sure to send that to you. Um, you're oh, welcome. please do. Yeah. Oh, that will be so delightful to see. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Halloween will be sorted in our household, at least for Carrie. Oh, so. that's beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, I highly recommend, I think, yeah, this is, this is my goal is to just like spread the Marlowe word, right? Like that, that is, he hadn't been murdered in a bar we mm-hmm. would be taking classes titled Marlowe and we would not be taking Shakespeare, right? Like you would just have outshone Shakespeare and any other author of the period if we had more of his work, because what we do have, it's just like utterly astonishing and bold and um, it's a pure delight, right? I, I totally uh, agree. Yeah. I mean, like the, the soliloquies at the end where he's like talking about, he's like, he's like trying to bargain his way out of being damned. He's like, I hope the stars that, that sealed my, that set my fate can like burn up my body so my spirit can like turn into a dew or a mist and like fly up to heaven yes. like just like these yes. incredible images wow. just like crystalline brilliance of imagination on his part to like write these lines i mean yeah i totally agree and i you know through through really intense like days long research i.e. me reading an entry on wikipedia i saw that that shakespeare also um really like you know pays homage to to marlowe in different moments in in his his corpus and uh, one of my favorite writers, especially as a young person, Graham Greene also like quotes Marlowe in different moments. Like I'm thinking in, in Brighton Rock, the line about uh, like this is neither this is hell nor are we, are we out of it uh, part, which the grammar of which always confuses mm. me. <laughs> um, but yeah, so no, like uh, Marlowe, Marlowe was, I mean, just just a just a king. I mean, just like incredible. And and I, I yeah. totally agree with your with your take there. um awesome and i I apologize because i i kind of i diverted our our conversation a little bit so so i just got really excited uh Um. no 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 that was the best part of this episode please keep diverting us (laughs) to where we need to go um right on (laughs) but we should i feel like we should say something about demons because you know podcast um so i wanted to turn very briefly to um necromancy and you know how do you go about doing magic because there was this hesitation that Klaus pointed out in our episode on this German uh earlier German text the Historia um where there's is it is it a, an explicit disavowal like hey readers it's not going to show up here uh, I'm oh, not yeah. going to give you the oh, magic oh, words yeah oh right? it's exactly that it's an okay. it's like we're not going to do that we're, we're not going to like sully your, your 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 virginal you know pure minds by putting these magical formulas in there <laughs> Yeah. And so, but we do get like, I think the most dramatic moment is when he's like, all right, girls, we're going to get into some Latin real quick and I'm going to conjure yes. up Mephistopheles. And I thought it, we should say something about this moment. Um, and so, because there are some interesting, uh, you know, first of all, you know, it's like, hey, you know, be nice to me, all you gods of Acheron, the kind of Greek underworld reference mm-hmm. there. Um, uh, bye bye. Triple spirit of Jehovah. Um, let's see, what else does it say? Oh, hey girl, um, spirits of fire, air, uh, and water. Um, what else? Uh, Prince Beelzebub of the East, uh, burning, um, sorry, king of burning hell and Demogorgon. Cause you know, you gotta give a good shout out to a Netflix show there at some point. Uh, you know, we, you know, you know, be nice. Um, be nice, uh, appear and rise up, uh, serp- serpent or dragon Mephistopheles, um, which, uh, tumeraris, you will, mm. anybody? I don't remember. Swell up? Like, well, yeah, yeah, like tumescence, yeah. Mm. Um, by Jehovah, by Gehenna, like hell, I suppose. Um, and, uh, the, the consecrated water, which I now sprinkle. Um, yeah. So, th- so think like baptism, like asperges. Like if you're thinking, you know, churchy thoughts here, because this is what's going on. And by the sign of the cross, which I now make. Okay, I just wouldn't have guessed <laughs> that uh, if I were conjuring a demon, making the sign of the cross is not the first thing. I, I want to get into why we think that is. Um, and I have a theory. I have a theory. No, yeah, I have some ideas. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so whatever. And that's how we're going to raise up Mephistopheles basically at the end. Um, 
So what do we think about these moments? Um, and I'll start maybe, uh, Klaus, do you want to start, give us, give us some comments about this, this formula? Well, I do know that, that Marlowe, Wikipedia tells me, learned his Latin very well at school. And the, the only reason there was some doubt about his going to university was that they thought he was going to use that Latin to perform, uh, you know, Tridentine masses at the English, uh, like, monastery in France and be trained as a crypto priest or something. Um, but no, yeah, so the, the Latin is interesting. I think it's interesting that Mephistopheles is referred to as a dragon periodically. Mm -hmm. My 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 mm -hmm. very uh, tongue in cheek response as to why the cross is being used is because we just watched uh, the the 1973 Hammer Banger classic, uh, the Satanic Rites of Dracula, in which the cross, the, the, the sign of the cross, <laughs> or like the cross is made on people's heads upside down in in uh, in blood in in cock's blood. Mm. So yeah. um, that's that's my theory as to why he's doing that. He's trying to get in with Dracula and doing the satanic rites of, of Dracula. <laughs> Um, so that's my that's my contribution to the discourse there. Um, that's amazing. I like the goodbye yeah. and help, like like see you later. Uh, you know, Trinity. Hey, girl. Hey, spirits of water, fire, and earth. So it seems like we're <laughs> at first when I was reading Latin, I was like, wait, it's um, valeat is a nice thing to say. It's like yeah, wishing someone yeah. well. And I was confused at first, mm. but then when I saw afterward, it has the. Um, you're Saluted, you're, yeah. sal you're saluting afterward that's the hello as opposed to the goodbye and that's as well established so i'm just like oh this is like see you later girl and hey girl hey instead of what i thought it was originally um <laughs> this hello and goodbye and that our first invocation we have a greek reference at first and then we're saying goodbye to christianity we're saying hello to the elements which feels like a kind of you know, vaguely European um, pre-Christian mm. reference, right? We got our elements, but yeah. it's also drawing natural on natural philosophy. philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Hey, jinx. Jinx. Uh, love love when that happens. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, and then we got some reversals. And that's, I think, the most I have to say here, other than, you know, demigorgon, gotta love that. And then dragon, this dragon in Latin, we've got, it, it could be draconis, right? Like it could be, um, it could be a serpent or it could be, um, a dragon, and we get that ambiguity in translations of Revelation as well, right? So serpent, yeah. dragon, it's all the same thing, right? So, um, And then I'll just add too, like what uh, is really interesting from a performance standpoint is that like, yes, like Marlowe, um, great Latinist, and a lot of like the young men in the audience probably would have known what Faustus is saying there, but like for half of the audience or more, uh, this would have been completely illegible, right? Like this yeah. would have been, he's just speaking gibberish to, to half of the audience there, which I think actually adds to the, the mystique, right? Like you have from the period um, people who couldn't read, but they knew a little bit of Latin, like they'd heard it somewhere and they get arrested and in trial records, they say this nonsense Latin. Um, and they, you know, claim that's how they, like, you know, would conjure up their own familiars or things like that, right? Like, you don't actually yeah. need to know what it is to find that yeah. moment immensely harrowing. Mm -hmm. um, and then, too, just another performance note is um, they would have used, like, they're, they're, you know, of course, like, they don't have a ton of special effects, but they do have fireworks in the period. Um, and so fireworks are immensely loud and stinky because they would use sulfur, right? So um, when Mephistopheles finally appears after that long conjuration, and again, like that too is interesting that it takes so long for him to actually show up, right? Yes. Um, he's like, come on, come, come here, uh, Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles! Mephistopheles! Um, anyways, when he does show up, it probably would have been at least that first moment before he transforms into a friar. Um, like accompanied by, you know, very stinky, very startling fireworks, which I think mm. would have been yeah. really, really exciting to see, you know? And of course, uh, we, we, we attempt to replicate that in modern productions, but I think it would have been even more startling for uh, the original audiences. Can I just ask fast, and I had this um, as something to talk about before, because I, I, I confess that like, despite doing this podcast, I don't really know a lot about magical conjuration and grimoires and, and things like that. Do we have any idea if this, this incantation, this necromancy that he's doing is in any way resembles 
anything people would have actually done? Or was this just Marlowe going off? <laughs> so I, I'm going to answer that question with an anecdote, which is um, years later, this guy who hated the theater named Philip Sugg, he writes this giant poem and it's about like how, you know, we're all sinners and we're all terrible. Uh, and one of his examples within this poem is about a performance of Dr. Faustus. And during the moment where um, they are performing the seven deadly sins, you know, you have seven devils come in, obviously. Dub yeah. um, claims that during this performance, uh, there were actually eight devils on stage. So that earlier, Faustus's language had indeed conjured up a real devil. And apparently this performance ended in like sheer panic, right? Like, oh, like the actors wow. freaked out. Oops. And <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so um, that's all to say. I um, the like the power of that moment would have been like like ever present to original audiences. But like for your your question about like, do we have we do have some grimoires and and texts that describe ways in which to conjure. Um, from this period. And so there's a famous one um, that the Folger Library has called mm. uh, the Book of Oberon. And it describes, uh, it, it's just a manuscript, right? It was never printed. So it uh, has these beautiful illustrations of ways in which you can conjure up demons, slash uh, fairies, right? Like the, the um, author is very imprecise about, you know, their different mythic beings. Um, and uh, there's, you know, diagrams there's like you remember how like Faustus says like lines circles like all these different forms mm -hmm. of um representation that's what he desires most uh yeah we do have texts like that and if they're really fascinating to read they're um constantly negotiating between like wanting this occult power and also you know not wanting to be damned right so they they stage in a kind of micro way the same um desire for knowledge that Faustus himself uh expresses mm, so okay yeah, yeah. Does that, like, so it seems close yeah 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 totally yeah, yeah. and so it, it seems like it maybe isn't exactly uh what would be in one of these texts but like it that Marlowe was at least like attuned to the kinds of interests and curiosities and desires and discourses that would actually be authentic if even if he wasn't like doing it himself and to me that kind of points right. to a, maybe just like a, you know an almost obvious interpretive question is like and of course like this is probably like anathema in some ways to like modern textual criticism but like it's so easy to see Marlowe and Faustus sort of like congealing into one being <laughs> in different moments yeah. considering how <laughs> considering how mysterious mm -hmm. and like much of a bad boy Marlowe was like it's like I don't know I just it's it's easy to make that connection I agree and I I think that there's nothing wrong with that right like I I tell my students um, in most cases, you should avoid, you know, yeah. kind of equating biography and literary work. But yeah. but with Marlowe, it makes so much sense to do so, right? Like it it really does seem like he was a type of autobiographical writer in a way that I think is actually totally justified, right? So um, yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting, you know, moments of confluence between Marlowe and Faustus uh, that I think are really fun. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. I wonder if we want to turn to to the end of the play and talk a little bit about uh, some differences between um, the gorier ending of the Historia of our German text that Klaus uh, did an episode on recently um, and the kind of walking off, you know, hand in hand, our lovers. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Faustus and Mephistopheles. Um, what do we make of the ending here? And I'd love to hear um, Katie talk first because she's smarter than Klaus. <laughs> I totally agree with that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> no. Um, so, so yeah, I think um, probably so that we, we have like scant evidence of how that would have been performed. But my, my supposition is that they actually would have used the trapdoor at the very least, like Mephistopheles and perhaps other demons come up out of the trapdoor mm -hmm. in that last moment, right? Um, but it's, it's so incredible because remember, like we start the play with Faustus alone. Then for the rest of the play, he's never alone. He's always got Mephistopheles. And in fact, there's a moment where he's kind of alone and Mephistopheles says, I'm going to go get something to distract him. Right. So mm -hmm. he's constantly mm -hmm. just being, uh, I don't know, just he's distracted by it, Mephistopheles. 
And then at that last beat, he's alone again. Uh, and yeah. it's an incredible like move through like multiple philosophical schools, right? He references like Pythagoras and you know the notion of like dissolution, right? All of these different ideas. Um, yeah. And in despair, right? Like it's he's searching after knowledge in despair. Um, and and what he gets instead at the final moment, like he's gotten throughout, is spectacle, right? Like even his own death is a spectacle. Everything yeah. that has led him to dam damnation has been mostly, or at least, you know, primarily spectacle, right? Um, so it's, it's just like, it's so amazing theatrically yeah. <laughs> to like yeah. slow yeah. the pacing down, right? Like slow it down in that final key and then have the sudden um, potential violence, right? Like however they did end it, or if it is Faustus and Mephistopheles leaving together, um, it's still like a different, kind of um note i guess you could say right and the rest of the play has been um so yeah i i love it i think it's it's um like you know for future playwrights <laughs> yes. the ending of Faustus, um for how it it unsettles and and how it, it changes the, the the movement of the play itself yeah and i mean the trap door is interesting because they use the trap door in the burton film but it's it's amazing mm. because like the trapdoor opens, but the, the stage itself starts to like cleave apart, you know, and all of hell becomes like visible through like this giant crack that's opening up. It's very effective at it, but it uses it uses that tradition of the trapdoor that I think you're pointing to um, and re references that directly. And then of course, like it's not it's not Mephistopheles with whom Faust is leaving. It's Elizabeth Taylor, the devil, who drags <laughs> yeah. him down and leaves Mephistopheles behind. And Mephistopheles is crying as she drags him down into hell. And he's like, this sucks. I lost my boyfriend. Oh, yeah. the, straight, the straightening of the play, as it were. Wow. Yeah, yeah, um, right. yeah. Klaus, what do you think of that? Um, do you think that that um, the ending and the way that kind of hell breaks open um, is in, in any way a kind of callback to the idea that hell is all around us, that there's no bounds, there's no easy way to describe that it's under the heavens um, and that, you know, this is hell. Um, do you feel like the way that it breaks breaks open references that or do you still feel, because um, again, I've been saving the ending for, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. to enjoy and savor later today, but um, do you feel like it's referencing that or does it feel like a very distinct place and um, we've kind of abandoned that idea because there's a tension here, right, between the idea that hell is everywhere and that it's also a place of um, more intense punishment and, and finality right yeah well and what as he's led i think it's i think it is does play into the idea that it's everywhere even though it does seem menacing at first because it seems to be someplace new but as he's led through it at the end it recapitulates all the scenes from before so it's like made up of everything he wants you know it's like hell is oh. like getting what you want kind of yeah. thing so I think that's a big part of it that he is, he's like getting, he's like finally able to possess these spectacles, except they possess him and they dominate him. And I think that's, that's sort of what's going on, but right. Yeah. The line that hell is everywhere. It's like hell is everywhere. Every, every place will be hell that heaven is not. And so I do mm. think it really carries that forward. Um, and, um, and this I reference, hate to go be ahead. rude. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I, I just, I have to go. I'm so sorry. I have a meeting no, that's okay. uh, in just a few minutes. This was rad. Um, so, and this was, um, this was a pure delight though. Thank you so, so much for having me. And I know I kind of just like, you know, nosed my way into your podcast. So <laughs> oh no, you, I, I, I'm so grateful. Like, yeah. Yeah, you, you made it you, so like, much better. Oh my yeah, god! It's so I much am better so grateful you people. took the time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Katie. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jet, but um, I will stay in touch, and I will probably bug you later today, Klaus. So yes, you. yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone, go and and buy Katie's book when it comes out. We will put we will put the title <laughs> in the description. So yeah. All right, Katie. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye, Katie. So uh, another another smashing perfect episode of Seven Heads Ten Horns in the books. We did it. We brought home more Faust content. We got to talk about this crazy film a lot. The, the, the play, like everyone should read it. It's obviously out of, you know, copyright restrictions. You can get it on the internet. It's short and it's packed full of dazzlingly beautiful language, even if it is kind of chilling, but it's that season, which is probably why we're doing so many episodes. Exactly. Read it before bed. It is an amazing work of literature. I had no idea how great this was going to be. And I'm uh, super thrilled that we, I got the chance to read it. Um, so you should do the same. Uh, so with that, thanks for listening. 
See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.